0: Be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 18 this morning, this our second Sunday of Advent. We looked last week at the doctrine of Christmas as a whole, namely that Christ came in order to restore fellowship, fellowship first between lost humanity and the Father, and then as a result of that, fellowship amongst one another. As the old angelic song proclaims, peace on earth, peace on earth, among those with whom he is well-pleased. That's the message of Christmas. This morning, we find ourselves considering the second aspect of Christmas. How should we now live as people who have encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and are now anticipating his return? Are we just to stand around, twiddling our thumbs, just waiting for his return? Peter gives the answer. I invite you to just read with me. We'll just read the first verse here, and then we'll pray and we'll ask God to help. In 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, it says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? That's the main verb there. How then should we live? How then are we to carry on? What sort of people ought we to be? He says, in lives of holiness and godliness, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Oh, Lord, help us to see what you mean this morning. Let's pray and ask him to help us. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we pray that as we look this morning, that you would open our eyes to help us to understand not only that we are called to wait, but to reveal to us what that active waiting, and indeed as Peter refers to it here, reveal to us what that hastening is that we are to be occupying ourselves with as that appointed time draws near. Help us to understand that this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A prison cell is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, one hopes, one does this or that. Ultimately, these are all negligible things. The door is locked and it can only be opened from the outside. Christmas 1943, Nazi Germany, a Lutheran pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who has been actively engaged in a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler, has been arrested by the SS and has been thrown into prison as a result of his part in the conspiracy. And he's been permitted to write letters home. He is a Lutheran pastor. He has written some interesting works of theology. But probably he is most fondly remembered, I would argue, for his uh, book, The Cost of Discipleship. But sadly, no. He's most fondly remembered for the letters he wrote home from prison during this time. And at Christmas in 1943, as he is awaiting what must surely be his execution, he writes this letter home to loved ones And he makes this statement, a prison cell is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, one hopes, one can do this or one can do that. Ultimately, all negligible things. The door is locked and it can only be opened from the outside. He goes on to write, "'Misery, sorrow, poverty, loneliness, helplessness, and guilt mean something quite different in the eyes of God "'than according to human judgment. "'That God turns toward the very places "'from which humans turn away. "'That Christ was born in a stable "'because there was no room for Him in the inn. "'A prisoner grasps this better than others.' And for them, it is truly good news as we wait inside, locked up, for our Savior to come and open the prison cell. And indeed, that is what we see pictured in the New Testament. We read this earlier in the service. Two individuals, Simeon and Anna, worshiping the Lord in the temple, waiting for the consolation of Israel. There is nothing they can do to bring about salvation. They are waiting for the Savior, And indeed, Christ comes. Churches the world over celebrate during Advent season this season of waiting in which we have understood that our Savior has come. We no longer wait for his appearing, but we wait for his reappearing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes this statement, one can do this or one can do that, but these are, he says, ultimately negligible things. But Peter says something quite different. Look with me in Second Peter chapter three, and we'll pick it up in verse eleven. Peter says, "Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be?" He makes the statement. That's the main verb there. How should you live? What kind of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And notice this, verse twelve. Waiting for we've got that check. Christmas Advent waiting for the return of Christ. We are waiting. We understand it is a point fixed in time, that there is an appointed time in which the Son will return to this earth. Jesus spoke clearly of it in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, regarding that day and that hour, no one knows. And he makes the statement, not even the Son of Man, but only God the Father. It is an appointed time for which we are all waiting. But notice what Peter says. He says, what kind of people ought we to be, verse 12, waiting for, and now catch the second half of it, and hastening the day of God. Hastening is the opposite of waiting. There's a sense of urgency in that. The first part is relatively straightforward. We are to be patient. We are to bide our time. We're to sit quietly and wait for the day to arrive. And yet Peter says, what kind of people should we be both waiting and, he says, hastening? Now, that word hastening, you hear that, and if you have in your mind this picture of people who are about to be late for their flight, running frantically through the airport, trying to get to the gate before the plane pulls away, if that's the picture that is presented to your mind as you you read these words, hastening, then you have the exact correct picture. That's what the word means. Well, we're either sitting on the plane, waiting for the flight to be over, or we are rushing to the gate, frantically trying to make our plane, but these are not understood as the same kind of activity, and yet there's a spiritual tension that's presented here. Peter presents them to us as both binding on us as Christians. What does this expression mean? Waiting and hastening. How do we hold these expressions in tension? Again, Peter provides the answer. He describes the kind of character that we ought to be striving to develop as Christians. In verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. He's talking about the return of God, the coming of the day of judgment. And if you jump back earlier in the first part of chapter 3... Peter writes in verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both, he's referring to his first letter as well as this second letter, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, Following their own sinful desires, they will say, and take note of this, verse 4 they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? We don't see him. He made this promise thousands of years ago that he would return, that he would come back, and here we are, 2022 years later, after the birth of Christ, and we're still waiting. Where is this so called promise? Where is God? This is what the scoffers are saying. This is what those who mock the Christian faith, this is what those who mock the truth of God are claiming even today. They say, where is the promise of his coming? And they make the argument, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, which is a flat-out lie. Peter goes on to illustrate what they're referring to. They're saying essentially that the world has just continued on forever and ever, this endless cycle of everything just remaining the same, and he says they're overlooking this fact that the world that was first created by God back in the days of Adam and Eve was destroyed by water, and he references the flood of Noah, and he talks about the fact that this current world in which we live, which is different than the world which was initially created, this current world is being reserved for judgment, and it will one day burn. Indeed, we see that our scientists have bought into a false understanding of the origins of humanity because they invented this lie and they chose to believe it. This idea of evolution is relatively new. It was coined, uh, it's been around for several centuries, but it was really made famous. I'm sure you're all aware of Charles Darwin and the famous, that epic voyage he made around the world and his discovery of these finches on the Galapagos Islands who had slightly different sized beaks. And from that, we have survival of the fittest. But really, these theories, these ideas, trying to come up with an understanding of the origin of humanity that did not require God, all started well before Charles Darwin. There was a man who preceded him. He wrote a book which has become quite famous. Uh, the book was titled Principles of Geology, written by Charles Lyle in 1830. And essentially what Charles Lyell suggested was that there was no grand flood, that there hasn't been any grand alteration of our earth, but that our earth has existed in perpetuity for millions upon millions of years, And that it all remains constant and unchanged, and that as a result of that, there have been these slow progressions, slow adaptations within species. That was the theory upon which Charles Darwin jumped off. And so many of us today become enamored with this view of science, not realizing that its foundational presupposition is in direct contradiction of Scripture. Peter warned us sometime between 60 and 65 AD when he writes this letter. In the last days, scoffers will come who mock the truth of God and they will begin by asking the question, when is he ever going to come? And it's a rhetorical question that's meant to belittle the promise of God based upon the assertion that the world has remained constant. Look with me. Verse 4 They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5 They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They will not acknowledge the reality of our world. We see this today. Peter emphasizes the day of God is coming. The day of judgment will arrive. Just as surely as Christ came the first time, he's coming a second time. And despite what the world outside says, the question we must be asking ourselves, knowing that he's coming back, what kind of people should we be? Now, Christmas is the time for travel. Many of us are going to get on planes or we're going to get in cars and we're going to drive somewhere and we're going to go see family and we're going to spend holidays together with, ex- with loved ones. That's a wonderful thing. I remember the first time I went on a road trip with my kids. We were going to go visit some family members down in the States and we told our children, go and pack your bags. We are on our way. My youngest son excitedly ran downstairs, grabbed his um, Thomas the Paw Patrol Thomas, the fire truck backpack that he had, and he packed it full of the most important things that he needed to take with him on his road trip. Now, Shanti and I were like, well, you know, we probably ought to just double-check that thing and make sure he's actually got everything he needs. (laughs) And so we went down, and he's thinking, okay, I'm going to go see Grammy and Grampy, and so I need to take those things which are most essential to spending time with Grammy and Grampy. And so we said, well, show us what you've got here. And we opened up his backpack, and we pulled out a stuffy, a teddy bear. That was, you know, that's what a stuffy is. It's a fuzzy, stuffy animal. And then we pulled out another stuffy, and then we pulled out another stuffy, and then we just began taking out all of his stuffed animals, and then we dumped out the bag, and various toys, lightsabers, different, uh, you know, Legos, stuffies, all this stuff dumped out. And you know what we didn't find in there? Not one lick of clothing. <laughs> Not one. They say, son, where are is your clothes? I'll be good with what I've got. <laughs> he says, mom, I can only fit so many things in here. I got to take the important stuff. Now, I share that with you this morning because this is where you and I are at. We're on a journey, and God is coming to meet us. What are we packing? What are we packing? Peter poses the question like this, what kind of people ought you to be? He's speaking to the essence of who we are. He's talking about our character. How then are we to be shaped? How then are we to be molded? What kinds of people should we be at the core, at the center of our being, knowing that God is coming, knowing that there is an arrival point in time. He makes this statement. If you look back with me, he says, What what, what kind of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 12, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And he talks about the fact that it will all be burned, this is a fixed point in time in which God is coming in judgment, and as we approach that moment, he uses those two, uh, they're they're participial phrases, and, and they're in contradiction, not contradiction, they're in juxtaposition with each other, and there's a tension that's there, we are to be waiting and yet hastening. When he asks the question, what kind of people ought we to be, when he's talking about our character, we know then that the character we form, this is the activity we're to be engaged in as we are waiting for the arrival of God. And at the same time, thinking about our character and our spiritual formation, Peter alludes to in some mysterious way, this also, he says, will hasten God's arrival. God comes quickly to those who are striving to enjoy him in fellowship by conforming their character to the image of Christ. That's what Peter is alluding to here. He goes on. We are to be living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day, the coming day of God. And he talks about the judgment that will come. And if you jump down to verse 14, as he poses this question, what kind of people ought we to be? The concluding section of Peter gives us three things we need to do. Two of them are closely related. One is different. The first one is this. He says, therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him. He makes a statement without spot or blemish and at peace. And if you jump down to verse 18, his final word mirrors that. He says, be found without spot or blemish and at peace. And then there's a close parallel to that, which we find in verse 18, which is the last verse of the book. He says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ. As we look back at what he says in verse 14, he says we need to be without spot and we need to be without blemish. Spots refer to this internal character. To be spotless, I think he's referring to this character that we have on the inside. But blemish, that's something we can see. That's more speaking to the external. When Peter uses these two terms, he's talking about who we are to be on the inside as well as how we are to appear on the outside. It's not just the character of who we are, but it is the outward manifestation of the righteousness that we are to be cultivating in our lives. That's what he is driving at. This idea of blemish, this has to do with how we are perceived. Now, right off the hop, let me just clarify. In 1 Peter as well as 2 Peter, Peter is writing to a people that are being actively persecuted as a result of their walk with Christ. He's not talking about having just the most stellar reputation that you can possibly have regarding the world around you. If you're here today and you're hearing Peter say you need to be without blemish and you need to be walking in such a way that all the world is praising you and clapping for you and cheering for you, you will be sorely mistaken. And in order to emphasize this, I'll just remind you of what Christ said in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 12. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On account of me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted and maligned the prophets who were before you. If you're maligned for being godly, then you're doing a pretty good job at removing blemishes. The idea here, in terms of your external appearance, is not that the world is in love with you because of your walk with Christ but that when the world speaks against of you because of righteousness and because of the name of Christ, then in God's eyes, you're doing a good job in clothing yourself, in packing the right kinds of clothes that you should be wearing for that day in which you meet God face to face. There's internal character, which Peter says, no spots. And then there's external character, in which Peter says, no blemishes. This is mirrored by what he says in chapter 3 and verse 18. In chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are two interesting things to be paired together, but they're actually crucial to understanding the whole thrust of what 2 Peter is about. This word knowledge is used all throughout the whole book. In fact, if you just go all the way back to chapter 1, He starts off with his opening greeting in verse 2. Chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he's saying, I want you to have grace, but there's a condition in terms of how you receive this grace and this peace. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. So you can underline that right from the word from the get-go. Peter is emphasizing knowledge. Knowledge is going to be a crucial aspect of this book. And he repeats it again. If you jump all the way down to verse 5, he's talking about how we're to grow in terms of our virtue and our character, and he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and look at this, virtue with knowledge. But that's not the only place he says it. He says it down in verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about how Scripture is inspired, how God spoke through prophets. This makes up the second half of chapter 1. In chapter 2, he talks about false teachers. And in chapter 2, he says that they don't have knowledge. If you look at verse 12, talking about false teachers, he says, "...these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, are born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant." That is, they do not have knowledge. And continuing on in his condemnation of the false teachers, if you jump down to chapter 2, verse 21, he says, it would have been better, regarding these false teachers, if they had never been born. He says, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. He says, their knowledge is killing them. It would have been better if they hadn't had this knowledge. And again, we see it in chapter 3, know this first of all. That the day of the Lord is coming, and we jump down here. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowledge is the watchword here. And so if you go back to chapter 1, you're probably thinking to yourself, how is it exactly that I grow in grace? How is it exactly that I grow in knowledge? Just recently, I was trying to teach my children how to chop wood with a maul. It's about a 10-pound it's an axe, it looks like an axe, but it's a little bit fatter. It's meant for splitting wood. It weighs about 10 pounds. It's way heavier than your average axe. And I can recall, as a young man, I had an uncle who had polio in his, child, in his childhood. And as a result of that, the right side of his body had been paralyzed by the polio disease. And he could take an axe, and without the full use of the, left, of the right side of his body, using his left hand, he could split wood one-handed, and with his good foot, he could, sp- he could kick the log up onto its edge and just with one hand split. And I remember helping him split wood as a young man once upon a time, and I had two good hands and two good feet and the full use of every muscle in my body, and I could not keep up with this man. He was moving so fast with that wood. He had been shaped partially by his circumstances but also just as a result of the drive to grow in a skill for which he needed to develop the muscles. And I, this, this came back to me just this last week as I'm sitting there with my, my kids. I'm like, okay, you take this, and I, and I told them. It was not a lack of proper teaching. It was a lack of proper listening. I said, this thing is heavy, so when you lift it up, it's going to be heavy. Don't go up so hard and so fast that it, go, it drags you backwards. Just lift it up over your head, and I, I did the full body motion with them. I said, when you swing it, you want your right hand to slide down and you want to drop your hips and you know tighten up your abdominal muscles and you want to pull this axe down onto the wood. They're like, yeah, yeah, dad, yeah, that's fine. Pretty straightforward. Come on, give me the axe already. And I'm like, no, 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 now listen. The thing is heavy, so make sure you hit the wood. Drop your hips, drop your whole body, Don't stand up like this and then swing it and miss the wood and then chop your shin. They're like, yeah, yeah, dad, whatever. Give us the ax. Okay. What happened next? No! It's like, oh, and she, and one of, I won't name which child, but one of them almost split their shin. So there's this moment where we're evaluating potential injuries And then we say, okay, so that was a good demonstration of how not to do it. Yes? Yes? Yes, Dad. Are you listening now? Can I I show you one more time? Now I'm listening. There's a difference between passive listening versus active listening. There's a difference between thinking you know something versus knowing what you need to learn. Church, let this set on you for a second. You've heard the gospel for many years. There are some in this room that have been raised from birth in Christian homes. You've heard the old story a thousand times over, You can recite it with your eyes closed. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He dies on the cross in order to pay for my sins. All true. And yet, if it's all we say, we don't know anything. Jesus pays the debt for your sins. But he does not save you in your sins. He saves you from your sins. He does not only satisfy the record of what you owe, but he breaks the power of sin and he gives you grace to walk free of the power of sin so that you can live a life that is holy and pleasing to him. And that's actually how Peter starts this letter. Now, I'm telling you this because I know you've heard it a thousand times over, and yet I have no doubt that among us today, there are people who still do not fully understand what the nature of grace is or how God's grace is to work in our lives. He concludes his letter. He says, grow in grace and knowledge. And that's how he actually begins his letter all the way back in chapter one. Look with me, verse three. Peter's first statement after the initial greeting, God's divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Has he granted to us most things? No, that's not what the word says. Has he given us just what we need to know? And we'll come back a little later on and figure some more stuff out. Again, that's how many of us treat it, but that's not what he says. He has given to us everything we need through the knowledge of Him. Notice what he says. The knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now, there's a problem right off the hop with your translations. In verse 3, it says glory and excellence. The Greek word there is arete. It can mean excellence. It can be translated that way. But it can also be translated virtue. Okay, so now jump on down to verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. In verse 3, it's translated glory and excellence. In verse 5, it's translated faith and virtue. But excellence and virtue are the same words in the Greek and that is consistent with what Peter is calling us to. He's saying, hey, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And he goes further. He says, he, in verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through knowing those promises and believing those promises and acting upon those promises, he says, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Well, what is the divine nature? It is a nature of, we could say, excellence, for sure. That's one way to translate the word. We could say it is a nature of virtue. Sure, that's another way to translate the word. But however you translate the word in verse 3, you better be sure that's exactly what Peter is driving at in verse 5. God has spoken promises, and we believe those promises... And through believing those promises, as he alludes to in verse 3, verse 5, we are thereby called to grow in the same character that God has. It will be a struggle all of our lives. We're never going to be able to say at any point between now and the grave, I'm perfect. I've reached a point of sinless perfection. Nevertheless, we have been enabled by what God has done for us in sending his son at Christmas time. To become partakers of the divine nature. Now I wish, and, and, I, and we could someday go through every single one of these. But this is a Christmas sermon, not a full exegesis of Second Peter. But I would just draw your attention to the last two. He says in verse 5, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Last phrase there. Godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. The first word, brotherly affection. The Greek there is adelphine. Phileis, phileo, these are other words types of the same word. It speaks to brotherly love, and so it's well translated here, brotherly affection. And the next word in that list is agape, agapao, agapitas. These are all the same type of word. These are two kinds of love. One speaks to the love that you have for your brother or your sister within your family. A second word speaks to the love that you have for something because of its purity and its excellence within itself. It is a valuing of something. The distinction between these two is that when it comes to brotherly affection, you love a person, you feel an emotion for them, they produce an emotion in you. You love them, they love you. But when it comes to agape, you're talking about supreme value. As Christians, we talk about the fact that we love God, and because we love God, we love each other. Does that mean that we are ice cold to each other in the foyer? You see what the progression here is, is that you're supposed to have brotherly affection, and then you add to that agape love. We, if we're going to pack our bags if we're going to be ready for that day in which we meet God face-to-face, we must grow in grace and knowledge. And one of the character attributes that comes to us in our sanctification as we are pursuing our knowledge of Christ is that we would have a brotherly affection for each other. And following that, we would have the proper value for each other as people created in the image of God we are not properly treasuring God's image and we are not properly treasuring each other as individuals created in the image of God if when we interact with each other, we are stone cold and indifferent. Adelphine, that is brotherly love, must go hand in hand with agape love. That's what Peter is driving at here. You want to get ready to meet God face-to-face? You want to prepare yourself and hasten the day of God's return? We have to grow in certain virtues. We have to pack our bags with certain attributes. And the two that I would remind you of this morning, Adelphine, brotherly affection, and agape, supreme love. I say, Pastor, what does that look like? I have some horror stories to share with you of what it might not look like. When I first came to Canada in 2008, I was meeting some Canucks for the first time, being a Texas boy. So we were church planting, and we were meeting in a movie theater. It was up here at the Odeon Cineplex, and I remember walking in my very first Sunday, and there was a fellow there whom I love, still love dearly to this day. His name was Jerry he says, oh, you must be the new guy. I say, yeah, I'm, I'm Josh. Howdy. He says, hello. And then he puts his arms around me and he kisses me on the cheek. They don't do that in Texas. <laughs> they don't do that in Texas. And I was kind of like, you know, you're kind of struck for a moment. You're like, did that just happen? Like, yeah, no, I think he did. I think he did. And then he saw the look on my face, and he says, well, hey, it says in the Scriptures, greet one another with a holy kiss. Which it does say that. It's biblical. Gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen, there are many ways to demonstrate brotherly affection for each other. I'm not saying don't give each other kisses, but I'm just saying you might consider alternatives, okay? (laughs) And and I would say this, I was very, uh, I I had the wrong impression of Canadians for a little time after that. Uh, And so people, you know, we're meeting, it's it's an evangelistic type of church. At the time, the the term that was used to describe it was seeker-sensitive. So we're trying to reach people with the gospel. And uh, I wasn't sure if, you know, new people coming through the door, if I should, if I should give them a kiss. I, I didn't know what, for a, little, for, for a little while, I was a bit confused about it. But that's not the only time that that's happened. There have been other moments through the years. And uh, here recently, about two years ago, I was in the foyer and I had, I had preached the message and we were leaving and we were dismissing. And uh, a fellow comes up to me whom I love dearly, still love him to this day, and he said, hey, that was a good word. Thanks for that message. And then he gave me a smack on the bottom. <laughs> good word, brother, like that. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank you, thank you. And uh, he noticed the look on my face, and he says, well, he says, you're from Texas. They, they do that, like football and all that. You, you guys do that. I've seen it on the TV, you know, when you score a touchdown, you, you know, and I'm like, I kind of give him the sideways look. And he was like, no, no, you do that, right? And I was like, yeah, we do that, yeah, yeah. I wanted to put him at ease. But I'll just tell you the truth. I've never had that happen to me ever in all my years preaching the gospel. That is the first time that has ever happened to me. And uh, I love this man, love him dearly to this day. And, And that was, for him and I, the very appropriate way of showing affection for each other. I mean, well, you know, for him it was the most appropriate way of showing affection for me. But, but my point is to say, there are good ways to show affection, there are not so good ways to show affection, and then there are better ways to show affection. One man that has been such an inspiration to me, I feel like the month of December might be the Pastor Al Hearn month, I'm not sure, but uh, I, I used him as an illustration last Sunday and I'll, I'll do it again today. When I was first getting to know Pastor Al, he, uh, he and I would talk, and we'd talk about Scripture, and we'd talk about our walk with Christ. And as I grew in my love and my affection for this man, and he grew in his affection for me, he would, as I would come through the door, he would grab both shoulders like this with his hands. And he would smile, and he'd close his eyes, and he would breathe deeply and just be like... I appreciate you so much. And as he said every word, he would kind of give my shoulders a shake. I appreciate you so much. And that was so sweet. All of them were sweet in their own way. The kiss on the cheek, the attaboy on the rear end. (laughs) But I think as Canadians, over time, I think Pastor Al has actually struck the correct balance we need to be capable of showing affection for each other. Whether it's a sideways hug, whether we're interacting with our kids and we're giving them high fives, whether we're just saying with the words of our mouth, I love you, you bless me today. We must grow in our warmth for one another. Can you say amen to that church? That's why I call it a church family. (laughs) Not Not just church. That's right. But church. Is this your church family? Amen. We must grow in our affection for one another. And now, I want to offer this last caution. We live in a very litigious society in which lawsuits will happen and accusations can be made. We're to be pure and above board. We need to be honorable in the way that we express affection for each other. If you see a guest, it's not somebody you know well. Shake them, give him a handshake. Save the kissing and the rear slapping. That can come much, much later down the road. Or not at all, not at all. I'm not saying you have to do that at all, okay? Don't misunderstand me. But if we have first-time visitors here, we want to love them, and we absolutely want to show affection for them, but uh, we need to do it by means of a handshake. Just this last week, uh, I, and I've become particularly sensitive to this. Just this last week, there was a sister who was um, going through a hard time. And Shanti and I were downstairs talking to her, and, and uh, I'm just very sensitive to doing anything that could be misunderstood or, or perceived the wrong way. And she was having a hard time, and Shanti was standing next to me, and I just... I wanted to give her a hug, but I wasn't sure where we were at in our friendship with each other, so I just said to my wife, "Shanti, go hug that woman. Just go give her a hug. And she did. And gentlemen, I suggest that's one way you can show affection for other ladies or sisters in the church. You don't necessarily have to be the one to hug them. You can send your wife in there to do it, right? So just a, just a thought, just a thought. When we pack our bags to see God in glory, we need to have brotherly affection and the reason why I say that is because supremely valuing the image of God, who God is, and supremely valuing each other as individuals created in the image of God, if we would have that agape love, we must also have the philice adelphine type of love, the brotherly love. That must be packed into our suitcase as we wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God. Many of us, kind of like my child from many years ago, we might be packing the wrong thing. Here's one thing that cannot be in your suitcase. And you need to make sure it is removed. Look back with me, chapter 3. He says in verse 15, "'Count the patience of our Lord as salvation.'" Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which you'll note, he says, the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. This has also been a major theme of this letter that Peter has written. He is dealing with all throughout chapter 2 and a good chunk of chapter 3, false teachers. As we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that should be matched by an increasing spiritual perception, an ability to discern true teaching from false teaching. What is true of God versus what is being distorted and twisted and perverted for nefarious purposes. The Apostle Peter makes a statement, you therefore, verse 17, he says, beloved, knowing this, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. What kind of people ought we to be? Well, we are to be people who are growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which looks like growing in our affection and our love for one another. That's the positive, but then there is the negative. It, as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we should be growing in a disdain and a hatred for anything that would corrupt the truth of the gospel. Any obstacle, any barrier, anything that gets in the way of people coming to know Jesus Christ, we should oppose that, and we should be against it, and we should not hesitate to stop it from entering into our church. Amen. Now, look at what he says here. He says regarding these false teachers, he makes a couple of statements. He talks first about his relationship, Peter, with Paul. Peter graciously spoke of the Apostle Paul, and he talks about him as his beloved brother, and he underscores that the two of them had the same mission, which was to make Jesus Christ known. And as the two foremost leaders in the early church, they were very much aware of each other and very much aware of what each one was doing, the ministry they were engaged in. And Peter here demonstrates a knowledge. He has apparently even read the letters that Paul has written to some of the exact same churches that 2 Peter is addressed to. We're talking about the churches of Asia Minor, whether it's Ephesus or Galatia. Peter has an awareness of that, and he encourages his congregation. He says, you need to take time to really dig into these things. Yes, he acknowledges they're hard to understand, but he still encourages them to dig into it, And the reason for that, knowing that they're hard to understand, there is this equal danger that some individuals will come along for the sake of a quick check, a quick buck, and they will preach things that are false because understanding certain passages, particularly with the Apostle Paul, they are hard, and therefore false teachers will come in and corrupt it and twist it to teach a false gospel. Peter is telling us the one thing we cannot have in our suitcase as we wait for the day of the Lord is false teaching. Line one. If we're going to grow in knowledge, then line one is this. We must grow carefully in our knowledge in order to secure our ability to continue to grow in that knowledge and to keep falsehood from entering the church. We have to be willing to confront error, falsehood, and heresy. Have to be willing to address it and to challenge it. Jesus Christ comes into this world to be known. He does not come at Christmas time so that we will quickly fall in love with a caricature, with something that looks like Him but is not Him. If we love Christ, we need to preserve the truth of Him so that others may come to know him as well. Our time is about done this morning. The Christian life is a long journey as we approach a point in time that has been fixed by God in which he will return to us. In some ways, it is both waiting on a plane for your flight to arrive, and at the same time, it is hastening to get to the gate to make your flight. This is a paradox in the Christian life, but it boils down to this. Our salvation is held in the Father's hand, and yet with Paul, with Peter, we can still say we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Christ died to save us from the debt of our sins, and He has given us grace to work out sanctification in our life that we might no longer sin but become partakers of the divine nature. Our salvation is secure, our arrival is certain, and yet what kind of people will we be when we arrive? That's the challenge I want to leave with you this morning. But I also want you to know that there's an incredible homecoming that is waiting. One of the greatest pictures of Christmas is just the sweetness and the joy sitting around the table, feasting with family. people that you love. If you've ever enjoyed that, what I want you to know this morning is that is but just a small fragment of the joy that awaits you when the Heavenly Father gets to sit down with you at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Many, many, many years ago, H.C. Morrison was a missionary to China. And he had given the best years of his life serving in China, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches. And at the turn of the 20th century, he was returning to the United States, and he happened to be traveling on the same ship that was carrying, at that time, the American president, Teddy Roosevelt. The commander-in-chief was coming back from a safari that he had taken on the continent of Africa. The ship was arriving in the harbor of New York City, and all the city had turned out to greet the returning president back from his vacation safari in Africa. Even the firefighting ships in the harbor were shooting streams of water up into the air. All the foghorns were blaring. There was a band that was cheering on the pier, waiting for the president to disembark from the ship. And C.H. Morrison was there, leaning up against the rail, looking at all of this commotion that awaited the president of the United States. And he said to himself, You know, no one's waiting for me. Here I have given the best years of my life serving Jesus, planting churches, proclaiming the gospel, growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And no one cares. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to him. said, ah, but Mr. Morrison, you're not home yet, are you? The American president has returned to the United States. But Mr. Morrison, you have not entered to heaven yet. If all that kerfuffle could be made... For an American president, I dare say, there is far greater grandeur that the Father has prepared for us when we see him face to face. Pack your bags, church. It's Christmas time. Father in heaven, help us to pack as you would have us to pack. Help us to put in the things that you would have us to put into the suitcase. And Lord, help us to leave behind those things which do not belong, and to put far from us falsehood and false teaching. Do this work among us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as the worship team comes, if you're here and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you're going to die someday, and that death will be eternal. But if you have ever taken the moment, I'd invite you now to trust in Jesus. And if you do, you need to know that though you will die, as the Apostle John says in John chapter 8, though you die, yet shall you live. It is not death to die when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Would you please stand with us as we sing?